Hey, and welcome to RRJ Off Leash. I'm Eternity, your multimedia editor. And I'm Allison, also your multimedia editor. In this episode, we are talking all about the love. Ooh, yes, love. And for our Valentine's Day special, we are talking about what it's like to date and marry a fellow journalist, some unique ways to understand and write about love and sex, and what happens when your love life as a journalist seeps into your personal life. Oh, scandalous. Yes, very scandalous. We'll be speaking to Dan Westell and Kimberly Noble, two journalists who are married to each other, to ask them how they met and what it's like to be married to a fellow journalist. Later, economist and author Marina Adshade joins us over the phone from British Columbia to talk about the complex relationship between the economy and love. And last, we'll have a panel discussion with some of our members from our masthead about what it's like to publish our love lives on the internet and the consequences of doing such action. <laughs> we sat down with Dan Westall and Kimberly Noble to talk about what it's like to be married to a fellow journalist. Kimberly was a journalist at the Globe and Mail and is a professor at the Faculty of Media Studies at the University of Guelph-Humber. Her husband, Dan, was also a journalist at The Globe and The National Post, and he's currently a professor in Ryerson's journalism department. We went outside the studio to interview the two together, and they've got some stories they say will embarrass their children. Take a listen. I was, for years, an art student and an English student at the University of Guelph, and then um, a retail and... Um, worker in the arts in Toronto, and then I went to Ryerson for the old post-grad program, and I freelanced for a while and then got a job working for the Fairchild uh, News chain of papers and trade magazines based out of New York, but I was in the Toronto office. So that's what I was doing when I met Dan. I was the Fairchild reporter working for American Metal Market and home furnishings daily and footwear news and a little bit for women's wear daily when we could get a story in which was rare. I was working at the Globe Report on Business and uh, Kimberly's boss at Fairchild, a very sharp and very, very nice guy, had applied for a job at the Globe and his application got screwed around a bit and he ended up approaching me to apologize. He didn't need, he didn't have anything to apologize for, but he thought he did. And I was, I just said, hey, no problem. So I, he invited me to a Fairchild party, I think. To his going away party. To his going away party in the Fairchild office, which was like one tiny room on Adelaide Street. It was, it was a, imagine a professor's office at Ryerson cut it in half. That was the Fairchild office. With two of us. With two of them. And uh, so I met Kimberly there. Uh, that was some years before we really met, though. This is the part of the story I like telling, and, and part of it was reproduced when Dan left the Globe in 1995. And in those days, we left infrequently enough that people still, still made front page going away, commemorative um, front pages for us. And Dan's front page reproduced part of this story, which was that my, the guy I worked for, Ira, Ira um, Breskin, who was the typical, if you cast a New Yorker for a movie, for you know, an, a Nora Ephraim movie, 
Ira would fit right in. Uh, he would come into work at six in the morning with his baseball cap on backwards and work in his little office and type away. And he was very brash. He was, he was such a New Yorker. And he stepped on lots of toes in Toronto, in the Toronto media. And he was always trying to make friends. He was a great reporter and a great teacher. But he was forever offending people. He loved Dan. He loved Dan's writing. And he used to read Dan's leads out to me in the morning. So the lead that they reproduced in the, the going away commemorative front page was a steel lead in which Dan had broken down the tonnage and compared it with the loss of the various losses and profits of the various steel companies in Toronto. And I still remember it. It was, you know, for every ton of steel that Algoma shipped last year, it lost X number of dollars. And I walked in one morning when my shift started at 8 or 8.30, and Ira was just raving, and he came out and he said, I have to read you this, I have to read you this. And so he, he read that lead, and so I like to say I fell in love with the lead. And then Dan had made him feel so nice after so many people got offended and were chippy and, you know, were so Canadian with him that I was very disposed to like Dan when he came to Ira's going away party. All I remember it was him. It was one of those incidents where the rest of the room was blurred and all I remember is him. And I remember him so distinctly that I remember the stitching on the lapels of his old blue suit jacket. It was just, it was cinematic. It wasn't like that for him. It took him three more years before he had a similar moment, which was during a story we were both working on about Adnan Khashoggi when we were both at the Globe, and we were arguing about it, and I was going off to do an interview, this terrible interview, and I didn't know what I was going to do with it, and Dan followed me out into the Globe parking lot, and we were both living with other people at the time, but he, um, he grabbed me and kissed me, and then I got in the cab, and then I pretended for about another six months that that hadn't happened. <laughs> that until, never happened. Until one night we went out to the Spadina Hotel where we were meeting a bunch of people. At, it was the newsroom watering hole and we talked about it because nobody else turned up that one night. Usually there were about 40 people in there, but we, Dan decided he was going to make me talk about it. So we talked about it and then that was 30 years ago next year. So you got married in... <laughs> well, that's a whole other story. We got married in 2007. We had two children. We had one turning 18 that year, and Dan was born in England, and we thought it would be a good idea if the kids had British citizenship. We got married so we could get her a passport, a British passport. <laughs> it's a long, convoluted story, but we had to be married before. Otherwise, even though she was my daughter, she couldn't get a British passport unless we were married before she was 18, so. The rustling of paper you hear, I decided this could be like This American Life with props. So the <laughs> rustling of paper you hear are photographs. I have brought some photographs oh, that wow. are actually out in our house. And I wrapped them up today. So these are not just photographs that I dug up. These are actively out in our house. So I wanted to show you, just give you a little bit, some visuals. Here's the other there's the little one. Uh, from from <laughs> our or the early years of our relationship, this is what Dan looks looked like. I'm showing a black and white photograph that his sister oh. took, and he is about the cutest thing. Dan, you look exactly the same. Ever so <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
I, still... I do. I haven't changed a bit. There's no extra weight. There's I, no gray. I still say I walk into a room and Dan is still the cutest man in the room for me. And still my eyes light up. I still have that sense of everything else goes blurry and all I see is him. What are some tips that you could give um, new journalists about dating each other? What are the best tips that you've compiled over your 30-year relationship? There's a, there's a phrase in the, in the hospitality industry in restaurants, which is don't fuck the floor, which means don't sleep with the people you work with, don't sleep with fellow chefs, don't sleep with people in the kitchen, because then when you break up, it's really, or you have bad incidents. And that's the same with newsrooms. It's you know they are small intense environments and there are lots of there were lots of relationships um and i imagine it's still the case but you know you have to be careful you have to realize that if you either go out with this person or sleep with this person or fall in love with this person you're going to be working with that person for a pretty long time um so the same thing applies, I think, as in restaurants. I happen to be lucky, but then... Um, we beat the odds. I mean, the odds are, I think, difficult when... And, and they're also difficult when you're working for different publications. I mean, you want to go home and talk about work. What about if you're competing? And we just decided that that we had to be able to talk. So we would talk and it just wouldn't leave the house. So I knew, I knew you know, Kimberly's, what she was working, doing for the Globe, but I wouldn't talk about it at work. And she knew what I was doing for the Financial Post because they were competitive papers. And uh, That's so. right, and unless you're married to people or have a prenup, don't tell them your story ideas because we watched one situation in which Two Globe reporters, well, a Globe reporter dated a summer intern. They broke up at the end of the summer, and she went off to another publication and told them all his story ideas. So if any of you are, li if either of you are listening, you know who you are. It was terrible. We told that story for years. He's still the person I want to talk to when I find something out or hear something that is fun or see something really stupid on one of the websites. <laughs> it's been 30 good years. I'm hoping for one or two more. Joining us now by phone is Marina Adshade. As an economist, Marina analyzes relationships and love through a unique lens. Her 2013 book, Dollars and Sex, How Economics Influence Sex and Love, explores how economic market forces relate to matters of love, courtship, sex, intimacy, and marriage. She's also a regular contributor to the Globe and Mail and has written for numerous publications, including The Wall Street Journal, The Daily Mail UK, and BuzzFeed. It, it is a unique perspective. I actually don't think there's any other economist who does the work that I do. Uh, but the way that I came at it was really through teaching. So I was I was teaching at Dalhousie University. Uh, the department had very um, lagging enrollment over time. There was fewer and fewer students who were taking economics classes. 
And so I proposed to them, why not offer a big um, class that attracts students, brings them into economics, and, and, and encourages them to apply economics to their own lives? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the, the obvious choice for that is the economics of sex and love. And so I proposed that to the department, and they let me teach it there for a couple of years. Uh, it was really popular, and, and that got me thinking about these topics, and then it just kind of went from there. I started to write a blog. Uh, and then I wrote my book, and then it's just kind of snowballed ever mm-hmm. since. And, and I think because this is a, a, a unique perspective, but when you tell people about economics and, and sex and love, it actually makes a lot of sense to think about it this way. Can you kind of explain that relationship in a nutshell? I know that's kind of a, a, a big thing to kind of compact down, but can you kind of explain how economics relates to love and love relates to economics? Well, it, it, it's actually, I don't even think it would be possible to narrow it down because, not just, not because the relationship is complicated, but just because when we think about love and relationships, there are just so many facets to it, right? Uh, there's the search for love, in which case economics helps us understand how those markets function, you know, where those markets fail, and how those markets are changing over time, you know, as our world become bigger and we have access to larger communities online. But that would just be one area. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could talk about um, marriage and how marriage is changing over time as a function of how women's role in the economy has changed. Uh, that would be another area. But there really is uh, kind of uh, as many things as you can think about uh, in terms of sex and love, there are stories that can be told from an economic perspective. Mm-hmm. Was this something that you thought about a lot, um, even like in your personal relationships? It's <laughs> a good question. It's funny because now when I, now with a little, little bit of hindsight, um, I realize how many of my personal decisions have been guided by my perspective as an economist. Mm-hmm. And actually, I don't even think it even... I think this even predates me becoming an economist. I remember when I was in, uh, oh, I think I was even in high school. I was, when I was maybe 15 or 16 years old, I remember having a big debate with a friend of mine about prostitution and arguing to him that it was unfair to punish women who explicitly sold sex when marriage women within marriage are implicitly selling sex. Mm-hmm. I was 15 years old at the time, so I, I, I there's several stories like that, and when I look back, I think, okay, Marina, this is purely the way that your brain functions, right? And, and, and other people, you know, take it first year economics, and they sit through the class, and they're like, oh, gosh, this is so hard, and, or this is so boring. I was never like that. I, I first sat through first year econ like on the edge of my seat. I've Ever since I started taking economics, I have found the subject fascinating. But this is one of the reasons why I started doing this, is because I've always loved economics in the economic perspective. I think it's a really useful world, way to look at the world. And so I really want to bring that to other people. Um, so I like talking about sex and love. It's a fun topic. But uh, the fact that I'm bringing economic stories to people who, who sometimes don't think about the world um, from that perspective that's an added bonus as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you think it's important today to consider economic factors when you're considering getting into a relationship with someone or to reevaluate your relationship with someone in an economic kind of perspective? I think that it's if I think that if you're single and you're searching, I think it's it's useful to think about the way that the market works. You know, I think that people people end up with people who are very similar to themselves in economic standing, not necessarily because 
they go out and, and seek that type of relationship. But those are the type of people that they end up with. You know, I, I always like to describe the, um, the uh, market for love. It's like, a, it's like a barter economy. You know, there's no currency. So it's not like you're going out and buying something, but you're trading qualities with another person. And the only way you end up with somebody is if you find somebody who's looking for the qualities that you offer and is offering the qualities that you yourself seek. And this is the main reason why people end up with people who are very similar to themselves, right? Mm-hmm. I may be looking at some, for somebody who has a similar education level to me, um, and then I'm likely to find a man who is looking for the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't necessarily think that if you were in a relationship with somebody, um, you would want to rethink it in terms of the economics. I think that would be a big mistake. Because, uh, you know, I mean, our, our, the, I, I, our intimate relationships are just so much more complex than that, right? Mm-hmm. There's a thousand things, you know, a hundred thousand things, personal qualities that matter, that make us happy in, in relationships um, that go beyond things that are kind of measurable from an economic perspective. Mm-hmm. So we decided that Off Leash needed a panel discussion, and what better episode to have a quick chat and perhaps a little bit of a heated exchange of words than in our Valentine's Day special. So joining us is Laura Hensley, whose voice is familiar to some of you. She's been on our podcast twice. She is our department's editor, and Davida Mastracci, our blog editor. We'll be talking about publishing personal writing and the sometimes awkward, embarrassing consequences, as well as when your writing gains you admirers. Since this table is full of very single people, I highly doubt that we'll be the ones to give love advice, so let's just stick to what we know and talk about the journalism. So Laura and Davide, why don't you both give us a quick rundown of your journalistic writing? Okay, so um, outside of my professional journalism writing, um, I also have a blog, and I've written some personal pieces online as well. So um, in my blog, I write a lot about my, uh, I guess, my memories, my experiences with a comedic twist. So, of course, dating always comes into that. And uh, I try to keep my professional journalism stuff, so the stuff I've done for, like, The Post or whatever, on a very different um, different route than I take my perhaps more personal pieces that I publish that I think mostly my friends read, probably other people, but... I'm sure people read your, your posts <laughs> other and you don't people, know Other people, I don't know. Uh, so I write mostly about, like, uh, super political, intense stuff, uh, and, and that's most of my, my public image, but I've also done a decent amount of writing about, like, relationships and that sort of stuff. A lot of it was done before, uh, and I would do it openly for a publication that's now defunct. But uh, I've also done some of it recently under a pen name, which is the first time I've ever written under a pen name. So it's sort of interesting. Uh, and I guess like Laura, I sort of did that so that I can now separate that sort of writing from the more serious uh, journalism that I do. So would you say that the pen name is kind of like, do you enjoy using a pen name or do you feel like maybe you should have published it under your actual name? Um. I don't really enjoy using a pen name, but I don't think there would be any benefit to publishing it under my actual name um, because I'm not really writing it to get attention or to build up my portfolio or anything. Um, But one of the reasons I used a pen name was so that, you know, people reading it wouldn't know it's me. 
but that actually backfired once and somebody who I was writing about found it and knew it was me. So it hasn't exactly worked out 100%. <laughs> okay, so we're going to get back to that in just a second. Um, can't let that one slide. But so we've all here written about our love lives um, and published it to the internet. Some of us under our actual names and some under a pen name. So how did you both go about this? Like how, when did you decide, you know, I'm going to write about my love life and publish it to the internet? Well, the first time I wrote anything personal was after I got dumped, and I was so sad. And I thought, well, you know, this is a pretty crap situation. Instead of crying and eating, like, ice cream for five weeks, why don't I try to turn this negative experience into something positive? So then I started writing, and I, you know, wrote something. I don't even exactly remember what, but it, a few drafts later, I, I submitted something, and it ended up just going on Thought Catalog, which is a basically a deep, deep well of people's <laughs> personal experiences, but it got quite a bit of traffic and it was, you know, interesting. So I thought, oh, maybe there is something here. Maybe you can talk about your personal life. And from there I've done, you know, various forms, but it, it started through a bad situation. Okay. Did you, were there any comments on? Yeah, so it, it, there was, and this actually it sort of, so it changed. So it, the article ended up being about like online dating. Um, and people were obviously, you know, people always want to talk about online dating. So people were talking about that and commenting. A lot of my friends were like laughing and writing comments. People on the site that I didn't know were commenting and Twitter. So there was some, yeah, yeah, back and forth. Okay. How about you? Um, I think it started maybe my second year of university, so 2011, 2012. And I guess I kind of just started it as a way to write in a different sort of style, a different way, kind of flex different writing muscles. Um, and I mean, it was kind of entertaining to write about different stuff than I normally would, but the way I would write about it was, uh, not about stuff that happened in the past, but stuff that was ongoing. So things that were ongoing, I would write about. And so sometimes it could be kind of disastrous because I was writing about stuff as it was happening and the people that I were writing about wouldn't necessarily always be happy <laughs> with the way I did it. Um, so yeah, I kind of just came out of that, that desire to it's, it was almost like a live diary, I guess. Okay. And so it's on the internet now. I also am guilty of this. The first article that I wrote made its way to the internet very quickly um, and gained quite a lot of traction very quickly. Which one was it? Um, so it was an article about like living in London and oh, it was about yes. dating white men. <laughs> yes. Um, and that went very quickly, um, went through everybody that I knew. Tell them um, the title. <laughs> so the title was Why I Don't Sleep With White Guys. I didn't really pick the title, but we know that in journalism, we don't always get the chance to pick our titles and our headlines. Um, and so that went pretty viral. I think it was like 12,000 likes or shares or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so right after that, I was too young to realize I could have used a pen name. And so it was attached to my name. And I guess it's kind of worked out in the sense where I've never really had a problem with the article. I think it's kind of helped my career in a sense. Everybody and their mother and their dog has, <laughs> has read it that I've spoken to. So in that sense, it worked. Thank goodness. Um, and so speaking of putting our personal lives on the internet has this been a problem for you has, has it like you know popped up in job interviews or on dates because now we google each other when we yeah. hear each other's names so has this been a problem at all i don't know if it's been a problem but people have definitely like on my blog i'll write i had this one blog post called like things guys have said to me and obviously most not most but a lot of quotes were from guys i had dated or people so i had so many people after i published that like 
you know, emailing me or texting me, like, is this one about me? Is this about me? And everyone thought everything was about them. And, and it was really funny because it wasn't, but the people who thought it was. But anyways, I ran into someone once who I hadn't seen in years. And he was, I guess he Googled me after because we had lost contact. And then he emailed me and was like, I found your blog. Like, were you writing about me? <laughs> I was like, I didn't really know you could do that. So it hasn't come up in professional settings, but definitely influenced my personal life for sure. Okay. Yeah, for me, it's never come up professionally, but um, since I was writing about stuff as it was ongoing, it definitely affected my personal life. Um, so it caused some conflict sometimes with people or sometimes people that I write about would enjoy it. Um, like I said, there was the one incident where I was writing under the pen name and uh, one of the people that I mentioned found out about it. But there's also been incidents where uh, I've written that sort of stuff um, and strangers have read it and then I've ended up dating those people. So it's kind of worked in like this weird way. <laughs> under your pen name? They still don't know your real <laughs> no, name. No, <laughs> no. That was like back in the day when I wrote under my real name. So, oh, okay. yeah, I know I don't have like a separate identity <laughs> set up or whatever to date people under, but... Um, yeah, so it's kind of worked in all different ways, basically. So this guy's got a lot of stories we need to unpack. Um, we need to, okay, so let's talk about then the pen name and, you know, the, the, the person who it was, about, it was about. Like, what did she say when she found out? Did she contact you? Yeah, well, we were still dating then. So um, the what I was writing for the publication was basically like every month I would do like a column for about like six months, kind of tracking what was going on in my love life and the different, um, you know, ideas that I had. Um, and the site that I wrote for has a couple books published associated with the site. So when the girl I was dating started reading that book, I knew it was only a matter of time because I figured she would read the book and then go online to their site and once she did that, it would be very easy to know that I wrote it. Um, so she brought it up in a text message and sent me a screenshot of it. And I was like, oh, OK. Um, and for the first couple of days, she was really, really upset. Um, not that anything I wrote was harsh, but she just you know, didn't like it. But then after a couple of days, she was like, oh, you know, this is a really cool story. I can tell somebody wrote about me, whatever. Um, but yeah, we're not dating anymore. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like what what you said, Laura, about like people contacting you and like asking, yeah. is this about me? Like I haven't had that in particular experience, but I've had people that I've dated ask me to write about them. Like deliberately yes. wanting you to write about them. Yes, like, like flat out say like, when are you going to write a story about me? I deserve <laughs> to have a story about me. Um, I've been in your life long enough where I deserve a story, which is not necessarily true. You don't you don't earn your story that way. But um, so I've had it in that sense. And I've also had it in a professional sense where most of the my job interviews kind of end up with like us talking about my published love life. Mm -hmm. um, and it hasn't really been a problem. It's kind of like an amusing conversation where they're like, I read that. That was hilarious. And so thank goodness. I think yeah. like I've learned my lesson, though, like it worked out. And if you Google me, it still comes up first, which sucks. Uh -huh. um, but other than that, like things have been positive, and I mean, I still haven't written. I don't think I've written about any new exes because I don't think they deserve it. So, what's the most awkward conversation that you've had about your personal writing with anyone, either your parents or a partner or you know, a friend? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I forget sometimes my mom's on my Facebook. So I'll, like, say something, like, even, like, 
I wrote a blog thing about like the first time I like kissed someone. She's like, so those that's what you were doing at those dance parties. <laughs> and I was like, you know, as an adult, I just laugh. So nothing has been super mortifying. Um, but I think sometimes, especially with the internet, you forget who can read and who can access your things. So whether you share it on Facebook or it's on Twitter or anywhere else, anyone can see it. So that's embarrassing thing about putting stuff online sometimes is that you forget <laughs> that people are reading it, you know. But no one's really, I don't know if there's been one specific instance. Davide, what about you? Yeah, I, I would say my mom reading about it. But I mean, by that point, I had already kind of would casually tell her this kind of stuff to break it in, you know, easily. But oh, so, yeah. I, so because of that, I would say the most awkward was probably when the dad of one of the people I wrote about messaged <laughs> me on Facebook. Saying, don't write about my daughter. Um, well, something along those lines. Uh, and that was the strangest thing ever because, I mean, I, I expect the people that I'm writing about to discuss it with me, but I don't expect them to tell their parents. I mean, we're like 22 years old. We're not children. So that was definitely the weirdest, weirdest uh, conversation I've had. You're like the Taylor Swift of, like, journalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, have I had any... Um my grandfather actually um oh. so <laughs> so my grandfather always wanted like he's like you know baby boomer wanted me to like have the white picket fence in the house in the car and i'm like i'm in journalism not gonna happen and so when i started writing um he wanted me to go into social work and i was trying to prove myself as a writer um so when i got a break at the huffington post and got to write for them i was really excited but then the subject matter was about hooking up with white guys so i told my grandfather i said oh um I've, I've got an article coming out in the Huffington Post. And he's like, well, where can I see it? I said, oh, you know, like just deflecting. Oh, you know, it will be up soon. It'll be up soon. And so every day he asked me for a week and I gave him a different answer every day. Like, you know, it's up or it, the site crashed or whatever. And then we went to go see a movie at the end of the week and we're sitting and the movie's about to start. And he's like got popcorn in his hand and he's eating the popcorn and he leans over and he says, I found your article. <gasps> and I'm like, oh, no, here it comes. Um, like frozen in fear. And he's like, I really liked it. And so <laughs> it broke the ice in that sense. And I was kind of relieved because yeah. like in my family, I've never we've never had a talk. I was thrown like one book, like mm -hmm. those American girl books, like the weird pictures. And they're like, read this. So that was interesting. But that was like the most awkward. But it went well. Yeah. It's kind of interesting how sometimes when you write as an adult about your personal life, how your parents who weren't able to talk to you about those things in the past actually find a way to connect with you and say these things. Like, I never talked about to my mom about, like, dating or anything when I was younger because I was so mortified. Um, but now when she reads things, it's like they have the, like, okay, green light, we can talk about these things exactly. now because you're sharing them with everyone else. If we move away from, like, you know, like the personal stuff for a second, um, many traditional journalists, in a sense, say that, you know, they're, they're very critical of personal writing and um, think that there's, you know, there's no place in journalism for it. It's not journalism. So do you both, you know, think there's a market for them or why do you think they're so well received? I think there's definitely a market. And I don't think that you have to be one type of writer versus another type. I think that, like, you can write magazine features about something completely unrelated that has nothing to do with you and be a really well-respected writer, but then also have uh, a part of you that does explore personal narrative journalism and you are writing about perhaps things that um, would be considered private because people really connect with human stories and they, they like knowing that you are a person at the end of the day. And so 
the times where you're vulnerable and you expose like the you know your private thoughts or struggles people really seem to um, receive that well and I think it's because we all internally or externally <laughs> go through similar things and when you have the ability to communicate them or you have the platform to do so you're telling people something about yourself that they most likely feel too and I think that's a level of trust and respect that's reciprocated then yeah yeah I agree how about you Davide um, I mean, I, I think personal writing could definitely be a form of journalism. It just depends how you do it. Um, I think there are certain journalists that I follow because their writing style is more personal, and then there's other journalists that I follow, and I expect it to be kind of more heavily researched, drier, more analytical, whatever. And I think, you know, they both can have their own role. I wouldn't call any of the writing that I did about relationships or whatever journalism. It was just basically... Uh, diary type stuff but yeah I think there's lots of room for like reported essays or, or anything like that mm -hmm. um, I think they're popular just because they're easily digestible and in terms of the writers themselves I think it just it's easy for people to write about their own experiences sometimes or at least it's easy for them to generate ideas based off their own life I guess the actual process of writing about their experiences can be painful but it's just it's kind of like a well uh, of story ideas that you're well acquainted with so Okay, um, and let's go back to <laughs> the the personal stuff. Uh, let's talk of like very briefly about admirers. Um, <laughs> I have none, so maybe Davide can yeah, take the reins smiling. on this one. He's smiling on this end. So Davide, I'll ask you then. Um, tell us about your admirers, the people who don't know you at all and read your stuff and contact you. Have you? Well, we know you've dated some. Please tell us. Share. The weirdest one um, was last year. I think in. October, or I guess October 2014, I got this email uh, from an older woman secret uh, admirer, it said. So at first, I just looked at the subject and I thought it was spam, right? I figured, okay, this is a spam email. But then I clicked on the email and it was this like 2,000 word long email going into these like crazy sexual fantasies and details. And this, this woman said that she had never met me, but she had just followed my writing online. But it, it wasn't a spam message because it was written specifically to me and it had personal observations <laughs> about me. So I don't know who this person is. I don't know if I've actually met them and they're just remaining anonymous, whatever. But it was, um, I don't know. At first I thought it was funny. Then I thought I was, it was a bit disturbing. Then I thought it was funny again. Um, but I never responded to them. So I'm really curious as to who it was. So if you're listening... Send me your name, but... <laughs> what was the email? Like, did you not... Were you unable to trace the email it came from? I, I tried. It was from, a, like, an anonymous email address, and I don't know. Oh. I, I don't really know how to track that kind of stuff. Uh, but, yeah, it was just, like, this really long uh, email, and then at the end, she proposed wanting to be pen pals of a certain variety and, like, you know, said that maybe she could reveal her identity if I went back and forth with her, with her but I had no interest in it. Um, so that was one. Then there's also been other times where... <laughs> there's more than one. Yeah, well, there's more than one. I don't... These ones are maybe not as explicit as this person, but there's sometimes been people that will message me that I don't know on Facebook and be like, oh, you know, I really like your articles, whatever. And sometimes I've ended up dating them, so I don't know if the intention was for that, but that's how it turned out. And... Uh, funnily enough, sometimes then they end up in the article. So the, the girl whose father messaged me originally messaged me because she liked those sort of articles that I was writing. And then like a few months later, she ended up in one. And so it's like this cycle. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I'm not saying that there's been tons, but there's definitely been a few, <laughs> which is surprising, but there's been a few. <laughs>
we're all single, very single and dating. So when you date people, do you, the people that aren't your admirers for David, um, <laughs> what do people say when you tell them that you're a journalist? Like what did, how do they look at you? Um, I don't know. I think that, I think people, I think generally guys that I've gone out with really like the fact that I write. Like I think that's been something that's been re- well received and like they find journalism really interesting. Um, so, and if they didn't, then I probably wouldn't go out with them. Like if someone wasn't interested in what I did and I wasn't interested in what they did, then I don't think that would work. But people are usually really interested in journalism and they're curious and they like storytelling. So it's always a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I've I've almost unanimously had good experiences um, when I tell people I do journalism and then, you know, they ask, oh, like, what have you written? Can I read it? And I send it to them. And again, surprisingly, most people have liked it and not been repulsed by it. Uh, so it works out pretty well. I think, though, as the years go on, uh, maybe when I'm older and people, you know, worry about mortgages and stuff like that, the fact that I'm a journalist won't be so well received. <laughs> be as because, attractive. Yeah, there's Your bills to pay. Will right? dry up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right now, it's just kind of, you know, everybody's young. They, maybe people think journalists are okay. Uh, but as the years go on, we'll see what happens with that. Maybe you should find that secret admirer. <laughs> like, Wait, I take it back. Please marry me <laughs> if you're rich. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and what are you both doing for Valentine's Day that is coming up very soon? Oh, yeah. Nothing really. I'll be doing work. I'm, doing, I'm, I'm going on a research trip, so that'll be fun. So maybe I'll have dinner with a friend. Um. I don't even know what it is. I think I treat Valentine's Day like I treat the Super Bowl, which is just like it's just another day. I don't really care about it. Um, but yeah, what day is it? What day is Valentine's Day? Sunday. Sunday. This Sunday. Yeah. Sunday, so Sunday February 14th. 14th. But wait till the 15th and 16th because that's when all the chocolate and exactly. candy goes on half price. And then you can just eat it all then. So it's it's basically actually a really good holiday. <laughs> All right. Um, and with that, I want to thank you both for joining us on this discussion, <laughs> this panel discussion. Um, and this was fun. So thank you. Thanks, Eternity. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Off Leash. We want to thank Dan Westill, Kimberly Noble, Marina Adshade, and the members of our panel for speaking with us today. Join us in two weeks for our next episode. Signing off, this is RJ Off Leash. <laughs> <laughs>